This is Quorum with Quorum's Quorum. My guest today is Manik Suri, the co-founder of Therma, which is building cold chain management technology. Manik's work has taken him all over the globe and from the private sector to the public and back. So I think Manik has some really interesting insights on in how to cultivate confidence in your own sense of direction. Here's Manik. Uh, well, hey, Manik, thanks for taking the time to talk. Good to be on, Kuram. It's a pleasure. Um, you know, when we were talking last time, the anecdote that, that uh, I, I was uh, taken with is, you know, so uh, you've known Pete Buttigieg since college, I think, right? And I have. You were talking about um, a book signing that you both went to and the very different departures of, of the outcome of that book signing. So uh, I thought that was a great story and uh, a really interesting takeaway from that. So can you tell us about that book signing and tell us about you know this, this history you have with Pete Buttigieg? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've, uh, I've known Pete almost 20 years now. He was a, a year older than me in college and uh, a friend and someone who uh, I think of as a mentor. He was uh, focused on uh, student politics, and uh, we both were very active in the Institute of Politics at Harvard College, the IOP, as it's called, uh, a group of aspiring politicos, if you will. Uh, Pete uh, ultimately ran the student version of the IOP, but he was uh, uh, you know, someone who I, I met uh, socially and then got to work with and got to know through uh, a number of organizations, the IOP uh, the political review, uh, the college Dems, and then later in life, um, you know, I was excited to support him when he ran for mayor of his hometown. And then, of course, when he ran for president, um, I helped uh, a little bit on his campaign uh, over a year and a half with his uh, his national team. Uh, one thing that 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 uh, stood out for me was his willingness to always um, put himself out there and take risks and be willing to. Uh, be you know, be faced with rejection. We were at a um, a book talk for the IOP book club, uh, and there was uh, you know an illustrious guest, Senator Orrin Hatch, and he was giving a talk on a book he'd written. And most of us were just in awe. You know, we were just like, "Wow, a, a sitting senator is chatting with us, and we're 20 years old, and here we are asking him questions." And I think it was the Kirkland Common Room or the the Elliott uh, Common Room, uh, the houses at one of the houses in the college. And um, I remember coming away, um, you know, just excited that he had signed my, my, my copy of the book, which we all got as part of the book club. Uh, and uh, Pete, on the other hand, felt uh, it was important to follow up with him and, and push him on some issues that he didn't agree with. And he actually ended up reaching out to the senator's team and I think had a follow-on conversation and meeting with him and ended up building a relationship with him, uh, as I understand but the, the, the point, I think the, what I took away, this is almost 20 years ago, what I took away is uh, a kind of a willingness to uh, put oneself out there, um, even when others might not, uh, that speaks to a kind of inner confidence and an inner uh, sense of uh, purpose and, and direction uh, that I've seen in, in many of my peers and people I admire who've kind of had outsized success and are doing great things in the world. And it's something I've tried to develop and cultivate, a willingness to kind of face one's fears of failure, uh, fears of rejection, which I think are, are really hard uh, to grapple with. And, and, and both as a lawyer <laughs> and as a South Asian American, I think they are cultural as well as um, reinforced in certain, in certain communities and professions. And so, yeah, it's something I've admired about him for a long time. So what are, what's an example of uh, in the wake of that, something you did to say, okay, I'm going to up my risk tolerance here. I'm going to stretch myself a little bit. Uh, I, I've upped my risk tolerance, uh, you know, several ways since then. And my wife can tell you all of the heartache and headache it's caused. But, um, you know, a couple of examples stand out. I, I left my job, um, you know, to kind of go down an uncertain path right out of uh, my first role post-college. I was working at a, um, a well-regarded uh, asset management firm called D.E. Shaw, uh, getting paid well, learning a lot. I worked for the guy who ran the fund who's a terrific mentor. Um, and I decided to leave, even though I was growing in the role uh, and getting a lot of outsized responsibility, um, because I, I, I wanted to uh, change paths. I wanted to work closer to uh, governance, uh, public service, um, work that had um, you know, a little more uh, connection to you know, my own long-term goals around social impact. Uh, I had no idea what I was going to do when I left. I just... I just um, 
decided I would, I would uh, change paths. And so, so leaving that job kind of mid stride was the first, uh, I think, significant risk I took. I ended up going back to law school a year later. Um, and that kind of took me down a different path for a few years, moving into um, legal uh, policy and, and, and the intersection of law and policy. Uh, for a bit, I thought I might actually work as a lawyer, uh, but I ended up taking another risk and deciding to uh, start a startup uh, after law school. So that would, I guess, be the second <laughs> big uh, professional risk I took. Um, and, you know, I think uh, those two stand out in terms of career arc. On the personal side, you know, I think the biggest risk I took was, um, you know, asking my then girlfriend to marry me, which was something that was hard for me. I'd met her when I was very young and I was, I think, scared of getting married. The idea of committing and, and being in a single long-term relationship as a, as a young person was really intimidating to me in my 20s. And, uh, you know, meeting at 18, you often, uh, you know, you don't realize how life quickly, you know, moves forward. And I think when we finally uh, had the conversation, um, for me, it was a real risk, an inner risk to kind of, uh, you know, take the plunge and uh, and move into a more committed relationship. So, yeah, those are some of the risks that stand out. Yeah, that's, um, those are all very interesting stories. I guess with, let's say with the asset management company, so D. Shaw, like you're saying, I mean, you were, you were international, you were in, I think two, you were in Shanghai and Delhi, I think. And uh, so, I mean, yeah, like you're saying, it sounds like an incredible experience. And so like, what was the inflection point for you? What was the moment you said, hey, okay, I, I really do need to change something. Cause that's not easy. It's not an easy step to take. Uh, and you already, I feel like had already taken, maybe some of the context for it is it was already such a sort of risky, extraordinary move to do this international leap. So you're already, you knew that much about yourself. So I guess that's some context to help yourself at the next jump, but uh, it's a jump to leave something that, you know, you feel like is going well for yourself and into, you know, cause I, I think that's the true definition of opportunity cost is that, you know, by definition is taking something that's good and saying, Hey, I want better. And that's really hard to leave something that's good. So I, I'm always fascinated with people who make those calls. And so I just want to find as many examples of those and share those as much, as much as I can learn from myself. So, so tell me about how you decided to go from good to maybe something better. Absolutely. And, and I guess, um, kind of taking myself back to uh, 2008 uh, I made the decision to leave in, in early 2009, um, and I think a lot of things uh, happened in 2008, uh, the year I was really uh, grappling with uh, life arc and career path. And I'm not sure, Kurum, I would say you know, good and better are, are the words that come to mind, but more, I'd say, aligned um, and inner alignment. I think you know, uh, whether a path is good or, 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 or not is really a, a matter of an inner compass as opposed to kind of an objective um, you know, reality. So um, I think for me, it was a, a question of was the path I was on aligned with who I wanted to become. And, um, and, and I remember sitting down, I was on a flight, uh, three things that stand out for me from that year. I was on a flight uh, between Singapore and, uh, and Delhi with my boss at the time, uh, who's now a friend and mentor and one of my investors in, in the startup I run. And he said to me, um, you should look at your your boss is boss. And if that's a job you want, then you're on the right path. And if that's not a job you want, then you should think about what you might want to do elsewise. And that really stood out for me. I remember he said that to me and um, I, I, I kind of grappled with that question of whether I wanted um, you know, to become you know, uh, a global asset manager. Uh, his boss was David Shaw, who'd started one of the most successful hedge funds in the world and is now a philanthropist working on uh, supercomputing, applying supercomputing to human problems at scale, mostly in healthcare. Um, really admired David, but I didn't think I wanted to become David. Um, the second thing that happened was um, a number of my friends uh, from undergrad at Harvard College had gone to work for Senator Obama when he was running for office um, and had worked on the Obama campaign in 07. Uh, and I had listened to Senator Obama speak in San Francisco I'd actually been at an event that he he spoke at, and I'd um, heard him speak, um, you know, of course on TV. Um, and something about, and I read I read um, both of his books, Audacity of Hope and his um, 
uh, earlier book, uh, Dreams of My Father. And something about him spoke to me as a kind of new voice, a new way of approaching politics. I'd applied to law school in college uh, and deferred, and I'd been deferring year after year at this point. Um, and something about Senator Obama and his, um, his inner resolve and his willingness to try to remake politics uh, you know, with more integrity and what I took as kind of a certain audacity and idealism um, really resonated. I joke that I'm, I'm of the West Wing generation as opposed to the House of Cards generation. Um, I watched a lot of West Wing. Uh, I've also watched a lot of House of Cards, but I think I was much more inspired uh, at that time. And so I saw a lot of my friends working on his campaign. And, and when he ended up um, winning, you know, kind of in a historic election, that was something that really inspired me. The idea that there was some, you know, opportunity to do good in and around government. And the third thing that happened in 2008 uh, was in, in, in the week of Thanksgiving of 08, I was living in India at the time, working at D.E. Shaw, helping to build private equity teams and invest in the country. And my parents and brother came to visit me from America. You know, they decided uh, to come visit because I was busy with work. They thought they would come uh, to Delhi, where I was based. And we decided um, that we would go and visit some family that we had not seen uh, very often who were based in Mumbai, in Bombay uh, that week. Um, and we rarely go to Mumbai. My family's uh, largely from North India, from Delhi. Uh, my parents came to America in the early 80s. My brother and I would go back you know, every year or two to visit my grandparents in Delhi. But we almost never went to Mumbai. This was only the second time we'd been to Mumbai as a family. And it was because it was Thanksgiving. And uh, we decided to take a couple of days off around the Thanksgiving holiday. And uh, we went to stay uh, towards the end of that week. At the last minute, my mom, who is a Marriott Rewards member, said, let's stay at the Marriott. I have points. We can stay on points. And I was going to book us at uh, another hotel where I had uh, points, uh, especially through my time at D.E. Shaw, uh, the Oberoi. And the day we ended up getting to Mumbai was uh, the 25th, the 25th of November. The next day, we were going out and touring the city, and that evening we came back uh, to have dinner, and my parents were tired because they'd just come from the U.S., and so we ended up staying in, and my brother wanted to go out. He was three years younger than me. Um, he wanted to go out, you know, um, see some of the nightlife, maybe go out for drinks, and we were thinking of going down uh, to the Taj Hotel uh, to a, a nightclub there. Uh, we didn't because my parents were tired. We decided to stay in. And that was the night um, when there were a series of terrorist attacks in Mumbai uh, across the city. Uh, and uh, it was a terrible, terrible experience for uh, everyone I knew who was in the city and in the country at the time. Uh, we watched it on live TV. Uh, at one point, I think uh, a Jeep drove by the JW Marriott where we were staying and actually fired gunshots into the lobby. Uh, my brother and I actually went outside trying to see if we could find an escape route to the beach for my parents um, in case the attacks hit this hotel, which was an American-owned hotel, and we all are U.S. citizens. Um, you know, and it was—it's hard to kind of describe the um, the intensity. I wrote a piece uh, a year later in Foreign Policy about the experience, about living through it, um, and I'd studied international relations in college, and my master's was in IR as well. Um, at Cambridge. And I think uh, as I reflected on that over the kind of month and a half, two months after, after that day, we, we, we ended up uh, thankfully being safe. Uh, there were no attacks in the hotel. Uh, many people were hurt or killed, um, including many Americans and British and Australian and Israeli uh, passport holders, but uh, not to mention, you know, scores of Indians. Uh, but I, I, I came away that, um, the end of that year, thinking a lot about the kind of work I want to do, the kinds of problems I wanted to work on. And I realized that um, I wanted to get closer to public policy and wanted to get closer to uh, to governance and to understanding what we could do at the policy level and uh, you know at the uh, at the human level to try and make a difference. and And I realized as I looked at the role I had, which was a really um, successful investment fund that was scaling, uh, you know, across the world, that uh, that wasn't going to be, uh, that wasn't going to get me there. 
And so it was kind of a few things that happened that year that led me in early uh, 2009 to sit down with Lou, my old uh, boss at the time, and, and tell him I think I wanted to go in a different direction. And he was super supportive. Yeah, that's um, obviously a pretty crazy story. So, uh, so moving into foreign policy was or policy was more in alignment with your values, and so that was a step forward. So then you're in that policy world, but you felt like there was still some other further alignment to be had. So, to talk to me about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I worked as an intern in law school um, my first uh, summer uh, of law school um, in, in the White House uh, in President Obama's administration on the National Economic Council team, NEC, um, working on economic policy, you know, right where I thought I wanted to be, <laughs> working on policy in federal government, exactly what I'd hoped I'd, I'd get to. Um, and that was the summer, that was the summer of 2011. That was the summer that the political uh, gridlock in D.C. got to kind of uh, an all-time, um, it's all-time worst, I think, by, by many accounts, including, I think, by uh, President Obama's recent autobiography. Um, he talks about about uh, 2011 as a, you know, 2010, but really 2011 as a turning point. That was the year when um, Congress couldn't agree on raising the debt ceiling, which was essentially a unobjectionable uh, bipartisan um, issue that had been successfully uh, resolved for you know several decades without issue. We'd always raise the debt ceiling and it threatened to degrade the sovereign cre- credit rating of the country. Uh, politics were that bad that uh, you know Republicans wouldn't agree to raise the debt ceiling um, you know for um, uh, you know for a number of reasons, but there was a lot of political brinksman- brinksmanship going on. I was working with an impressive team of policy leaders, uh, Mike Froman, who was a classmate of President Obama's at Harvard Law, who I'd gotten to know, um, who had also worked in IR, had a PhD and a, a master's in IR from England, uh, you know, kind of similar interest, IR and JD background, um, worked with um, Danielle Gray and um, Brian Deese, um, who is now running economic policy as the director of the NEC under President Biden. Um, and there were these incredibly talented policy minds, but um, no policy could get passed. Uh, there, there was no ability to actually kind of uh, make change because there was so much political gridlock. And that's when I started to realize how political policy is. Prior to that, um, I had really not understood how dependent on politics policymaking is. And uh, at the same time, I met a woman right right um, as I was kind of starting to see how, how the sausage gets made, so to speak. I met a woman in D.C., uh, Beth Novick. Beth was the deputy CTO, chief technology officer of the country. Um, she was uh, working under Anish Chopra, who was the first CTO of the country. Uh, President Obama had created an office of the CTO for the first time. Um, Beth was, um, uh, a, a, she likes to joke, a recovering lawyer um, herself. She had gone to Harvard undergrad 10 years before me and Yale Law, uh, taught herself how to write code before it was cool in the early 2000s. Um, and she'd written a book um, called The Wiki Government, WikiGov. She was um, doing a talk about her book, uh, WikiGov. And the thesis of her book was that network and data technologies were transforming social and commercial life, uh, You know how we dine, how we date, how we engage in everyday activity and commerce. But law and government, two of the largest sectors of the economy and two of the most important, we're still largely run like it's 1950, uh, and and you know she surmised that there was an opportunity there, uh, in that in that void, uh, to bring better technology to bear on regulatory and compliance and governance workflows. I read the book. I listened to Beth talk. I thought she was really inspiring, um, and I got to know her. I went to meet her. We had a couple of um, uh, lunches and and coffees, and then she invited me to join her to start a center at NYU where she was teaching uh, called the Governance Lab or GovLab. And I decided not to pursue uh, a path down the traditional policy route and become a policy advisor at the NEC, which was what I was planning to do. Um, And instead, I joined Beth uh, to start uh, the GovLab as a co-founder at NYU. And uh, that was my path into tech and entrepreneurship. It was kind of accidental. And it was really... um, 
you know, being in the right place at the right time and meeting someone who is truly inspiring. I thought Beth was one of the most impressive interdisciplinary thinkers I'd ever met. Um, she had this ability to connect concepts and has an ability to connect concepts between domains that's rare. Um, and, you know, she was both a lawyer and a policy wonk, but also a technologist and, a, you know, a entrepreneur, a kind of social entrepreneur, if you will. Um, and so we started the GovLab. We brought in a third co-founder, Aaron Cohen, uh, who's now my co-founder in my company. <clears throat> and Aaron was teaching at NYU at the time. He's almost 20 years older than me. Um, he'd been a serial entrepreneur uh, in the technology world. Uh, he'd worked in tech since the mid nineties. Um, and, you know, he'd worked on four tech startups, had, you know, had two successful exits. He was teaching at NYU at the time and Beth called us the private sector guys. <laughs> um, I had a background in investing and finance. Aaron had a background as an entrepreneur. And so we, we, we joined her to start this do tank to bring technology into governance and, uh, and, and regulatory and compliance workflows, trying to help uh, bring some of the great um, network and data tools that we're solving and and remaking our world into some of these large sectors that were still pretty legacy. Um, and I thought it was a continuation of my you know my inner um, journey. It was really kind of an inner process of trying to find more and more alignment and find a way to do work that both resonated with my values and that played to my skills. And so that's how I ended up being the co-founder of the GovLab, and that's what led me down the path of GovTech and RegTech and now into what we're building today. So I'm kind of curious. So now that you're down this path of entrepreneurship and you know, you're raising capital and, and doing all these things, you know, in this capacity, what are the ways that this path differs from the D.E. Shaw route? You know, because it seems like you could say, OK, well, maybe it's from the vantage point of, you know, your former know, collaborator at NYU, she might say, oh, like that's all the private world. So she might lump that all together, possibly, you know, if, if you two were like the private sector people. So, you know, what are the ways in which you know, this is further alignment, but it seems like, you know, you were kind of at some point in this world of commerce, you know, something that was about making money. So tell me about the ways this is similar or departures from that, that previous world. Absolutely, Karim. It's, it's a, it's an it's a question and an area I've spent a lot of time thinking about as an adult, um, and I've come to realize that um, that it's it's hard to lump. Uh, you know, it's it's easy to oversimplify and to see the world in kind of uh, large uh, buckets of activity: public sector, private sector, service, commerce, um, philanthropy, uh, profit. But actually, uh, you know, the specifics matter and, and understanding the relationships between uh, sectors, between modalities of operating, between uh, ways of marrying different um, institutional uh, requirements and incentives with human objectives and values can lead to a lot of creative um, intermediate paths that are neither, uh, you know, one nor another fully. Um, so the path into becoming a tech entrepreneur was really gradual. Uh, in building the GovLab um, and helping Beth um, get it off the ground, uh, what one thing that I realized along with my co-founder, Aaron, uh, was that it was very hard to recruit incredible technical talent. Um, uh, you know, great engineers, great designers, uh, great product managers, uh, to work for any sustained period of time. Uh, most people wanted to work at Facebook or Google um, or Netflix. And when we when we talked about break, you know, about solving broken workflows around public health or um, rulemaking or uh, procurement for municipalities or um, you know parcel plotting for the local land department or tax uh, assessment for the city assessor. Most uh, technical leaders and, and technical talent that we spoke with said, that sounds great. Good luck with that. Uh, we're happy to donate a few hours here and there. And what we realized was that if we wanted to harness the human capital um, that, that was kind of taking uh, technology and making it ubiquitous and transforming our world, we needed to uh, create a, a structure that could attract exceptional engineering, exceptional design, exceptional product leaders. Um, and, and that's something I spent a lot of time talking to, um, uh, you know, a number of folks about both on the private sector side and the public sector side, as well as in between. Uh, 
I spoke with folks at Code for America, um, at um, you know, in 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 government, at uh, the Office of Science Technology Policy, uh, in uh, you know, in the private sector, at venture capital firms uh, and PE firms. And uh, what became clear was that it was going to take a number of models. You were going to need a number of models to kind of effect change. Our goal was to bring um, technology to bear on broken workflows where we could improve uh, how government works. That was really the point of the GovLab, was to try and improve how government works um, and, and to make it both more effective and also uh, renew faith in public institutions in the process. Uh, you know, that, that the idea that if government works and, and meets uh, the needs of of the citizenry and delivering public goods and services. That's that's a long term way to reestablish and renew faith in government. Um, and and uh, Aaron and I uh, left to start a company, which um, you know we our first product is called CoInspect, Collaborative Inspect, and we chose to start CoInspect to focus on one broken workflow, one very specific workflow that was really flawed, which was a workflow I'd experienced firsthand. In my last year of law school, in my third year at Harvard Law, I had gone out in the field to build cases with city uh, inspectors. Uh, it was a housing law clinic, and um, it was around tenant eviction defense. Um, and part of the the work involved building uh, cases around field inspections of the built environment, uh, looking at potential consumer protection laws that could be applied um, to make colorable defenses uh, for tenants to to help them remain in their homes, but also to ensure that their rights were protected. And if they had to leave, that they got uh, just compensation. Um, what we saw, myself and my, my fellow student attorneys, was that the workflow around inspections was extremely broken. It was very inefficient. There was a lot of pen and paper clipboards, a lot of inspection logbooks, uh, people carrying around binders of legal code. Uh, it was very non-systematized, very ad hoc. Different inspectors would interpret codes differently. Uh, enforcement was very um, varied, um, and and as a result, uh, the entire edifice of uh, of regulation and compliance was was you know questionable. Um, you, you know, we saw this not just in housing, but in food um, and in sanitary codes in general. That was in Boston, um, which is a pretty well resourced uh, part of the country, and. Um, and what we realized, Aaron and I, when we were looking at, at workflows that we could build technology around, we were looking for broken governance workflows that were scalable and commonplace, because those are the kinds of problems that technology is best suited to solve. You know, immediate, obvious, straightforward, but very um, um, scalable problems. And inspections were met all of those criteria. It was a workflow that's done millions of times a year in every industry from barbershops to nail salons to nuclear power plants to bridges and dams and homes and, and restaurants. They all get inspected. Um, and uh, it, the code enforcement and the code compliance is notoriously uh, fraught with challenges. Um, it's been documented and well-written about. There's a lot of rent-seeking. There's a lot of uh, inefficiency. Many cities and towns are behind on their code enforcement. Um, and it's a source of woe and problem both for businesses and for consumers. Uh, businesses have to grapple with the costs of compliance, with ever-changing rules and regs, and with um, you know with the need to keep up. And particularly as the regulatory environment has shifted, um, you know uh, there have been new regulations in in, in food and pharma and um, accessibility that have caused businesses to really have to to take a look at their compliance protocols. Around the same time as we were looking at inspections really closely, Chipotle had a food safety crisis. Uh, Chipotle, the, the the fast casual brand that many people at the time loved, um, struggled with a series of food safety events that caused them to have um, you know a major uh, brand uh, challenge. They lost forty two percent of their market cap. Revenues fell by a third because of a series of um, potentially preventable food safety and quality issues that caused a number of consumers to get hurt and um, and that caused an uproar um, in the public. And we were looking at markets that we could build co-inspect for, and we had not thought about food at the time. Um, but restaurant chains and restaurant owner operators started contacting us saying, could we use your compliance tool, this um, uh, collaborative inspect tool that you've built for food safety and quality management? And that's how we ended up starting to scale in the food industry. That was in uh, 2015 into 2016. 
and so we started down the path to build a compliance and regulatory management tool using you know the best in class and best practices around technical uh, led product development, trying to use um, you know what we think of as um, you know well established startup principles like lean and agile development, uh, trying to get out of the building. I read you know every startup book I could find uh, from the hard thing about hard things to lean startup. Um, you know, to, you know, there's just a range out there. And um, so I tried to steep myself in startup lore and we started building technology. We, we started, um, you know, building a mobile app, then a structured database on the back end. Then we started scaling it, adding um, geolocation, language translation. Uh, and along the way, we started scaling into what became a farm to fork quality and safety management platform. And we ended up raising capital from, um, you know, what I think of as kind of mission-driven venture investors that wanted to build and scale a company, trying to improve health and safety, and uh, and do it in a in an industry, a trillion-dollar industry, the food industry, that's largely using outdated technology tools. And that's really how we we uh, we became, you know, a, a technology company. That was kind of phase one. Um, our second phase is a new product, a second product we built called Therma. Uh, and Therma has taken us from being a safety company to becoming a sustainability company. Uh, that happened in year four. Uh, we built Therma thinking we were building it for food safety. That's where we'd started in the food supply. We built it as a sensor-based platform to monitor refrigeration, temperature and holding conditions for food products. And what we discovered was that businesses wanted it not just for compliance and to improve safety standards, but they wanted it in, in, in order to catch refrigeration issues and refrigeration downtime. Uh, and for them, the bigger ROI was around avoiding food waste, around having to not throw product out and around energy savings, being able to optimize the refrigeration settings. Uh, and then lastly, around not having refrigeration go down, uh, being able to catch downtime events before they happen. Refrigeration is an expensive asset and having it go down can be both service disruptive and reduce the asset life cycle. And as we started building the second product, Therma, this IoT-enabled monitoring solution for smart refrigeration, what we discovered was that the reasons that businesses started buying it, food waste, energy waste, and refrigeration downtime, were actually major drivers of global warming. Um, we had no idea we were building a climate company when we started working on Therma in the summer and fall of 2019. It was going to be our second product around safety and quality management. And what we've discovered over the past year and, and change as we've scaled Therma into the world is that uh, it's become a smart cold chain platform uh, across the refrigeration cold chain. We're now deploying it in um, restaurants, convenience stores, supermarkets, manufacturing plants, as well as in the healthcare supply chain, um, which has gotten a lot of attention in 2020 with uh, a completely unexpected world event, COVID-19. Uh, COVID-19 and then the vaccine development and vaccine delivery that's come on the backs of that has required significant improvement in the cold chain, uh, the cold chain or the refrigeration infrastructure layer that covers the whole world um, is a largely legacy industry, a hundred plus year old industry with very limited innovation and a lot of loss of product of energy and of refrigerants. Um, and so co-inspect has become Therma. We still have our co-inspect product. It's now become um, part of the Therma brand. And today we work on safety and sustainability. Um, and, you know, it's still an early stage company. We're 60 people. We're based in the Bay Area. Uh, but the journey continues, you know, as, as we kind of keep trying to find alignment with problems that matter and uh, vehicles to solve them. So coming back to your question, Kurum, um, I think of myself and Aaron, when we, when we look at ourselves as entrepreneurs, I think of myself as trying to work on problems that have public import, that, that are uh, in service of the public good, but trying to improve those problems using um, whatever tools are, are at our disposal. And in this case, we have human capital and financial capital in the form of um, early stage innovators, early stage uh, maker doers, and early stage investors that want to see those products pr proliferate in the world. Um, everyone around the table from our team to our investors is mission driven. That's a pretty significant filter we have. Um, and I think there are a lot of people we've discovered who work in the quote, private sector, but who do care about bending um, you know, the arc uh, so to speak, of uh, of history towards justice, a more just world, and doing that in in on a plethora of issues. We're working on safety and sustainability. Um, those are two pretty significant issues in the food 
and and climate world and public health world we live in, but um, but they're not the only ones. But that's how I've kind of um, you know made my peace with uh, moving back into the private sector. It feels very different from the work I was doing, you know, as a pure hedge fund asset manager. Uh, it's a very different approach, very different modality. Still leveraging the private sector, its incentives, its ability to harness human talent and uh, quickly scale it, um, but doing it in service of something larger than just you know profit. So what's interesting about that past um, is that you know there's there's some serendipity involved in terms of accelerants, but you were largely heading in the right direction. And it's interesting when you say mission driven because the mission change over time because then you know you you saw these new avenues open up. So so how do you think about you know so when you're looking back at you know you're really getting this traction it sounds like but looking backwards at the sources of that traction, you know, to what do you attribute things like being mission-driven, picking the right technical problem? Like, how do you how do you think about those so that you can replicate that? Because by now, you, you've worked on several different kinds of things. So now I'm interested in teasing out, you know, the lessons learned from these different categories of types of problems you solve or challenges you run into to figure out, okay, what are, what are things that Monica has discovered for himself or maybe for others? Um, for how to set out, you know, in a promising direction, you know, how do you pick promising directions for yourself and directions that, you know, in your uh, kind of lexicon or, or construct are, are aligned with yourself? Yeah, absolutely, Kerem. Uh, appreciate the question. I think it's a really thoughtful question. And, you know, a few, a few reflections, a few, a few thoughts around that. Um, I think being mission driven and and though it's a much used and often hackneyed phrase, I think being mission driven is um is about motivation and about um um you know a metaphor I've been using recently is um what kind of fuel are you burning? Are you burning renewable or are you burning carbon uh based fuels? To me mission driven is about what gets you up every day, what gets you going uh and 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 trying to burn clean, trying to trying to burn renewable fuels that that self that are self generative that create their own energy source for you. Um, direction is a totally different matter. You know, you can put that engine in service of that fuel in service of, you know, running in any direction uh, from working in philanthropy to doing service on the ground um, as a, as a healthcare worker to, um, you know, being a, a product manager, uh, helping to um, deliver more effective FEMA relief through a FEMA website to a whole range of ways that you can make a difference. You know, many climate activists or, um, you know, uh, folks that are working in government are, are mission driven. Uh, I think the specific direction that, that one takes is often only partly in our control. I think we think it's always in our control. And then when you look back, hindsight makes, uh, makes life make sense in the rearview mirror. You know, when you look at the arc one's life has taken, um, I've been privileged in many ways in my life. My parents came here as immigrants. Um, they dedicated much of their life to ensuring that my brother and I have one brother, uh, that we had every opportunity they could make available to us. And though we didn't have much money growing up, um, we did have a lot of support uh, and a lot of encouragement around um, living fully and living larger than ourselves. Uh, my parents made sure we traveled a lot. Uh, we went back to India a lot to visit family and to see the country. Um, I think having a sense of perspective around the opportunities and privileges uh, of living and growing up in America gave me a, a desire to do something larger than just myself. Um, and part of it might have been uh, ego and ambition. Certainly, I think ego and ambition is is part of um, you know my motivation set. And and definitely when I was younger. I wanted to make a name for myself. I remember coming into college thinking, oh, I really want to, you know, prove myself here. Probably I wasn't alone coming into Harvard College with that, you know, um, desire. Um, and I, I think um, the more I've gotten to know about myself, the more I've realized that, uh, you know, I feel most motivated and most alive when I'm working with and around people that are motivated by something larger than themselves, whether it's in government or in a nonprofit like GovLab, or in a mission-driven startup like Therma. You know, in all of those settings, I found it's the kind of orientation of, of a certain type of person that I keep gravitating towards. Um, 
And I think that has been a real privilege, getting to choose where I work and who I work with. Um, and so I think I would encourage anyone um, who's listening, who's thinking about their own uh, choices to just kind of find your own, um, you know, find what fuel helps you burn clean, what, 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 what motivates you from within that gives you a sense of, you know, renewable energy every day that doesn't feel like it's, it's only in service how, of how others see you uh, or, or, or in service of power uh, and prestige, uh, which are, which are always there and always enticing, but, you know, I think can be false, um, you know, uh, fall, you know, they, they don't necessarily burn as clean. The other thing about direction I would say is I've been very fortunate to have serendipity. You know, I think serendipity is part of, um, life and being in the right place at the right time or being in the right inner, uh, space at the right time to be open to ideas. I would never have met, um, you know, I would never have met Beth and and chosen to work with her on the GovLab if I wasn't kind of curious and questioning. I don't think I'd ever have left um, finance to go back to law school if I hadn't been kind of curious and questioning and talking to folks. Uh, certainly wouldn't have started a startup if I hadn't been open to and 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 kind of keeping myself, you know, um, looking out for ideas and opportunities. And the last thing I'll say around this is. Uh, at some point in this last phase, I decided to stick with one thing. Um, you know, I decided to stay with uh, entrepreneurship. You know, I'd moved in my twenties between finance and then law school, and briefly in government, and then uh, come into GovTech and and civic tech, as the space was called, uh, civic technology. And uh, many times, I've thought about other things I could do. You know, policy or go back to being an investor. Um, my sister-in-law just joined the Biden White House. Um, as a uh, associate counsel, and I really admire many people working in the federal government uh, in policy roles. Um, and I decided to stay with this path because I think at a certain point, um, one can be more effective if one can move a ball forward for some period of time in in a given direction. And so uh, we've started to get traction with Coinspect and then Therma, and it's making a small dent in a small corner of the universe, but it's a positive dent. It's trying to make um, you know our food and our health better and safer, and do it in ways that are pro planet. Um, and I think that by staying with one thing for a while, opportunities start to manifest. Therma would never have been possible if we hadn't stayed with Coinspect for nearly four years. We would never have discovered the pain point that led us to build the second product, that led us to raise capital around Therma. You know that it, that have you know built on, and and I think that's um, that's a theme I've seen in many in many people I admire. That you know they they stay you know they both are listening for and and looking for opportunity um, you know and and serendipity thus makes itself a part of their journey but also they they know at times when to stay with something and really see it through um, and it's kind of that tension I think you know that 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 one sees in really uh, successful careers certainly in the people I admire I see that you know that there's kind of this um, creative tension between those two. Yeah, that's interesting. And it sounds like, you know, when you listen to your story, uh, you know, it sounds like for these different points where these transition points, they're very driven by people. You're either inspired by someone like, say, Obama, or, you know, you're inspired by Beth, and, you know, and these people inspired you and pulled you in a certain direction. Then also, there's a story about partnerships and the partnerships you developed. And I wonder if, you know, this partnership you had with Aaron was the kind where, it was a renewable source of energy for you. And that kept you motivated to keep on working on this for several years, you know, and keep on plotting along. So can you talk a little more about the people dimension about, you know, are, are people your source of renewable, renewable energy? And what does that look like for you? Absolutely, Karim. Uh, when I was young, I used to love reading biographies. Uh, and autobiographies. I, I just really enjoyed reading um, about people and how they lived their lives. You know, people that were historically uh, great, or people that were historically renowned, or people that were historically revered or respected for some some reason or other. Whether it was scientific accomplishment, political achievement, philosophical inspiration, um, or just activism. And I think. Um, I've often sought to find living examples of people that I could, you know, meet and 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 touch and 
you know, know in the flesh and blood that we're actual humans as opposed to these ideas of people that I read about. And I think I've I've always looked for and sought out um, both mentors, but also kind of living embodiments of values. Um, you know, I find that that's you know a way uh, of anchoring myself. Um, looking for people who I admire, trying to um, trying to find ways to be in their orbit, uh, to do work around what they're doing. Um, or at least to bend my own journey and my own my own arc in service of the kinds of causes they're working on. Um, I would say that's absolutely true of Senator Obama than President Obama. That was uh, a force in my life that kind of bent my career and took me. You know, I took myself in a different direction. Beth was another example of someone who who had that kind of role. And Aaron has influenced me a great deal. He's uh, been a serial entrepreneur, and he really helped me uh, examine the entrepreneur's path and realize that one could have a, a positive impact socially um, in the process of building uh, you know, enterprise and doing it as an entrepreneur. And, and, and so I think um, I've definitely sought out people and sought out their stories and tried to surround myself with people I admire, or at least get close to people I admire. Um, and, um, and I think partnerships, I absolutely feel that um, that 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 teams and and partners, uh, both personal and professional, are um, you know are vital in life. Uh, I've known my wife now twenty years, um, which is a long time for a thirty eight year old <laughs> in this generation. Um, she's my best friend. She's seen me through every phase of my life, and I'm very glad for it because I've um, I've always kind of felt I have this ballast, this support. Um, I like to make long-term relationships. I try and you know meet people I really admire or like and, and resonate with and keep them in my life and stay in their life. So Aaron, I've now known for almost 10 years. Um, and the journey, at least as an entrepreneur, is so lonely and so intimidating and so filled with failure that if I didn't have partners, personal and professional, I'm certain I would have quit um, you know, every other day <laughs> in many years of the journey. It's... Uh, it's very humbling. I think it's humbling, like many paths in life are humbling, you know. Um, but I do think partners uh, not only provide a kind of intellectual uh, and, and and analytical, uh, you know, dimension of of depth and and heft, but also more importantly, provide a kind of emotional um, sustenance and um, and a reminder of who we are that helps us separate ourselves from our work, so that we don't over-identify and think just because our work is a struggle that we ourselves are unworthy and failing. And that's been really valuable for me, having partners, both personal and professional. Yeah, I know that we're, we're uh, wrapping up on time, but here's one thing that yeah, I want to ask you is, you know, someone listening to your story might hear uh, the word Harvard a lot and say, oh, wow, well, this person, you know, they have all these connections, these people who had some sort of Harvard, Harvard Law connection, and I didn't have that connection. So what is something that, but you've by now seen a lot of people who are able to build relationships effectively. You've been in very people-driven fields. And so what are the lessons that you've extracted that you think are of general use to uh, a pool of people for ways to think about how to drive forward using, if they're relationship-driven, what are the things that they can uh, employ? Yeah, absolutely. Um I've met a number of people um, who have said that, you know, um, you know, without pedigree, without um, prestige, it's very hard to succeed. Um, I, I really reject that view. I, I, I completely disagree with that uh, mindset. I think that that can be self-serving and, and also uh, fatalistic in a way, kind of self-defeating um, and certainly a, a, an opinion that many elites have. Um, I think, um, regardless of whether you have, um, access to certain networks or have gone to a certain type of school or have a certain, uh, degree behind your name, um, you know, the first and, and most important task is to, is to find, um, you know, your, your inner motivation. Like what is it that, that, that gets you going and where is it, uh, that you find your, your, your source of, of, of motivation and energy. I think that, 
is the first and most important thing because from there, uh, a sense of self-confidence, a willingness to put oneself out there, a willingness to create opportunity by taking risk all stem. And many people who go to elite schools never have that. And so they never seize upon the opportunities they could or take the risks and have the outsized success and impact they could have. On the flip side, many people who don't have a Harvard degree or two Harvard degrees or you know whatever elite education um, you know w- we might all want for our children or for ourselves if we could be uh, lucky and fortunate and privileged enough. Um, I think that 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 there are many examples of people who who not only succeed but lead uh, without it. Um, and so I would say um, it's a real privilege if you do have access to uh, networks, um, you know, both educational and professional, and you should take advantage of those. If you do, you should, uh, build, uh, build a community and, um, and, and try and get to know people. But, uh, I think much more important than the specific school or the specific network that you start with is, um, is developing a sense of inner confidence and inner motivation. And then, and then putting that out there, showing up in the world. If there's one thing I could say to myself, you know, a younger version of myself, I could go back, I would say, um, you know, um, fear of failure and fear of rejection is, you know, maybe amongst the most human insecure, the most human feelings and, 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 and common and, and deep insecurities that we all have. And don't let that fear stop you from, from showing up in the world and whatever that means, uh, show up, put yourself out there, build community, uh, work on problems that you care about, um, and the rest will follow. Yeah. I love that. I mean, I think your path definitely, uh, you definitely didn't take the easy path or the track path. And I think, uh, it would have been very easy to, because I think so many of your peers would have. So I think it's admirable that you, you know, really went against the current or really kind of skirted to find your own path. Uh, so I think there's a, a lot of cool lessons there. Well, Monica, I think there was a lot of great ideas here. I love the renewable energy source idea. I'm thinking about that one. Uh, but yeah, thanks for t- taking the time to share your story. Well, my pleasure, Karim. It's a pleasure. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. And I hope we get to meet. Thanks, man.